Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. Um, this will be another one of our online programs where we discuss with an author his book and the ideas in the book. And uh, I'd like to welcome the entire audience here, uh, online audience. Tonight we have Tamim Ansari again. He was uh, here uh, back in uh, April. And uh, we've invited him back to talk about his book, The Invention of Yesterday, which is a great uh, progression of 50,000 years of history to see how, how we ended up in the situation we're in right now. So let's get started, Tamim, and let's go back 50,000 years, or, or at least you know, 45,000 years or so. We'll, we'll take about as many seconds as years in order to cover that, that the first part before we get to history. But uh, you have this, and a lot of people in history talk about the, the cave paintings and so on. How far away from us were their civilizations? How, how different? You know, uh, I don't know how different they were. What I focus on is that once uh, these cave paintings show up, you know that people are interacting in a way that we recognize as human now. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I'm specifically referring to is the importance of language in um, shaping uh, the experience we have as humans. And specifically, you know, the role that language plays in, in enabling the networks of communication that result in culture. So I think once you have, once you see those cave paintings and, you know, when, when they look at those, they also see little dolls that uh, represent, uh, you know, dancers or they see dancers, uh, paintings of dancers. Mm -hmm. You know that the whole panoply of human experience is there. Who knows how different it is? But if they've got language, for one thing, they're telling the stories of, of uh, you know, what their parents did, what their ancestors did. They've got history then. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, th that's as much as we can tell about that. Right. So uh, you, you, of course, focus on uh, what almost everybody does about 5,000, 6,000 years ago or so, where people begin to seem to have an, a desire anyway to record, and not just orally maybe, but record their history or tell their legends, explain why they are who they are and, and, and what their culture is. Um, and you, 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 you talk about that period of time and, and you talk about how four main cultures develop around four particular rivers. Uh, and those are the main cultures that you, you discuss. And then you have it, and then we'll, we'll get into the other cultures a little bit later, but it's very, very interesting in that you said that the rivers and the characteristics of the rivers actually influence the culture. So spend a little time on those four cultures. First of all, let me just say, there may have been other rivers where cultures arose. There's some, uh, there's some reason to think that there may have been an ancient culture that rose along the Amu River, which is, in the, which is the northern uh, um, you know, border of Afghanistan. But what I was interested in about those, about those four river cultures that I'm talking about is that it's common to say, uh, rivers were the cradle of civilization, and it's because, uh, you know, the flooding, annual flooding brought soil, and then they were able to irrigate, uh, you know, that soil every year. So that's true, but the question that occurred to me was, well, all of these rivers do that, and, this, and the civilizations, the cultures that arose on the banks of these different rivers, the Chinese civilization that emerged along the Huanghe River, um, the, the Yellow River, as it's uh, translated, the mm -hmm. uh, Indus River, the Nile River, the um, you know Euphrates-Tigris uh, uh, complex. If the same thing in all of these rivers 
were um, the, the explanation for how civilization arose there. Why were those civilizations so different? Mm -hmm. And what, what you immediately notice is that, well, those rivers are not the same. You know, they're all rivers and they all do this thing of flooding annually and bringing the soil, mm -hmm. but they're very different uh, kinds of rivers. Now, you know, um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the Nile River, the, the part we're talking about that's the cradle of civilization there, it's about 400 to 600 miles below this area that's called the cataracts, which are thunderous falls and rocks and so on. You can't navigate a boat there or anything like that. And it cuts off the people upstream from the people downstream. And then below that, you have this placid, big, you know, powerful river that's just flowing constantly south. And you have a breeze that's, that's, uh, I mean, uh, excuse, <laughs> excuse me, flowing constantly north. You know? north yeah. When you live where I do, you automatically <laughs> south is down, but that's one of those prejudices that we have. But, you know, the we'll just we'll just tilt the world around and then you are right. <laughs> yeah. There's no down we'll or take up. the African perspective. <laughs> you know, the is constantly flowing um, north and the wind over that current is, is constantly flowing south, which means that, you know, people living along that river, they could put a boat in with a sail. If they put the sail up, they flow one direction. If they take the sail down, they're going in the other direction. Uh, that generates a certain kind of a commonality of culture up and down that river. Whereas, you know, when you get to um, the Tigris Euphrates, it has rapids, it doesn't, it has rapids, it doesn't, there's, there's swampy areas. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's human habitation arises in clumps along that river. So, mm -hmm. You know, uh, along the Nile River in Egypt, you get this monolithic civilization that's very similar from top to bottom, and it builds pyramids and so on. And in, and in the Tigris-Euphrates area, it's sort of like the product of that river is little empires that then start to conquer one another and build, <laughs> you know, bigger empires. So as I say in the book, you know, it's like the Egyptians built pyramids, the, uh, the Mesopotamians built empires. I thought it was very interesting that you used the, uh, the pyramid as a symbol for authoritarian culture, which they, they certainly had, because uh, by itself, it's an image of authoritarian, you know, one thing at the top and everything down below holding it up. Yes, but you know, the, the Mesopotamians built ziggurats. That was also right. pyramid. Uh, what I was um, uh, interested in there, you know, the authoritarianism is, is certainly one thing that's going on with that metaphor. Uh, but the other thing that's going on is that let's say in, in small hunting gathering tribal cultures, you, you can't have and you don't have a pyramid structure of decision making because there's enough, you know, there's few enough people that at night you go, you come around the campfire and you share what happened during the day. It's a network situation. But when you get to something like, uh, I don't know, the, you know, the Nile is where we're going to stick, but it's the same with the Indus river. It's the same with that other, uh, the Chinese river. Um, Decision making has to has to flow from some place to lots to thousands of people. If you're uh, living along the Nile River, you're you're damming this huge river. You have a common enterprise that thousands of people have to be engaged in. And how does the the decision making get to everybody? Well, there's only one way. One person tells ten people. Each of those ten tell ten. You know. <laughs> That's bureaucracy, and bureaucracy is one of the um, 
is one of the um, the features that emerges when civilizations begin to congeal. What was the creation of bureaucracy in China similar? Well, you know, you know, the, the Chinese the Chinese have. I mean, by the time they get to Confucius, we're talking about a little bit earlier than that. By the time they get to Confucius, he's got this whole method of educating people for the bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera, which is still not completely uh, the same, but but fairly similar. Are, are there any compare and contrast between the bureaucracies in China and ancient Egypt? You know, one of the distinctive features of that of that Huanghe River, which is in China, is that it is the least navigable of these rivers. You know, mm. it's it's a river that's just thunderous in, in certain parts. So uh, habitation along that river was, uh, um, you know, separated by the river rather than joined by the river. And in each of these places where where um, human habitation emerged, the um, the kind of the pattern that you saw was a circular pattern. It was a market center surrounded by clumps of villagers that are related uh, in a family way. And they were living next to a river that uh, its most defining feature is that it fills up with silt and it keeps the waters rise. So mm -hmm. if you want to live by that river, you have to put up dikes to keep the water out. But every once in a while, if there's a big storm someplace upriver, the river floods and the dikes break. So you always have to be ready for catastrophe. So, mm -hmm. you know, some of the, the, um, the uh, roots of bureaucracy in a Chinese context, it goes back to that disastrous kind of thing. But it also goes back to you have to have a structure of decision making in place. You can't decide who's in charge when the flood happens, you know? <laughs> so, 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 yeah. you know, I think there's something there about the family, mm -hmm. and about the structured nature of the family early on in China. Later, when you get uh, the, the development of bureaucracy in China, one of the defining features or one of the shaping features is that because all of these people that didn't have immediate face-to-face -face contact like that, um, they developed different dialects. You know, they couldn't necessarily understand each other mm -hmm. uh, when they talked to each other. But early on, China developed a writing system. It wasn't, a, but they could communicate up and down the river with this, with this script system that developed. And as you go along in Chinese history, what you find is that the bureaucracy is, is closely related to the, the script, the writing. And you get a, a society in which very diverse uh, numbers of, of people, different groups, they can have unity if there are scholars in those places that can read so that the administration of a large area with many people uh, mm -hmm. is viable with the, with the writing system. And people who can't talk to each other, you know, if they sit down at a table, they wouldn't be able to communicate. But if they write mm -hmm. a letter, then they understand each other perfectly. <laughs> so. Well, this is a little bit of a digression, but uh, you, in a different part, you, you also talk about the importance of the Phoenician alphabet uh, on the influence on all the languages that that has uh, affected. So we're talking about not a pictogram, but an ideogram in, in China. And yeah. we have, uh, in Egypt, it's a little bit more uh, a pictogram. And then the Phoenicians come up with something new, which has a big impact on, on language. And, and they, we take languages a lot for, for granted. But as you said, the, the, uh, the scholars and the bureaucrats uh, are the ones who have to be the communicators. They're the middleman between all the different ways of looking and thinking of things. You know, so. 
Well, that's true, but you know, uh, the Phoenician system was a phonic system. <laughs> it actually yeah. comes from that. Uh, from yeah, that. that's nice. Yeah. And that was a whole different idea. You know, the, the whole mm -hmm. the fundamental idea was, was language is made up of just a certain number of, a small number of sounds. And if you could get a symbol for each of these sounds, then no matter what you hear, you could write it down. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the example that I give in the book is, the Phoenicians were great traders. They went here and they went there and they probably uh, encountered people who uh, were strangers to them constantly. But if they could hear those people, they could write down <laughs> mm -hmm. some version of what they said. So the next time they come back, they can say hello in the local language. Um, <laughs> and the thing about the ideographic system and the pictographic system of the, um, mm -hmm. of the Egyptians was that it, it involved thousands of signs. So it took a lot of study to learn how to read and write in mm -hmm. Chinese, whereas this Phoenician system, this phonic system, it inherently had something about it that was, uh, that was um, uh, more uh, inclined towards a greater number of people learning to read and write. Mm -hmm. So that the scholars became, you know, important expert officials in, in China in a way that they didn't, let's say in Mesopotamia or Egypt. Do you think that, that, that the difference in language and the way that we express ourselves had, had any influence on whether authoritarianism or individual democracy or any other kind of political systems? I mean, I, I know they didn't have democracies, but just more individuality in the system because uh, it was easier to be a communicator and not be dependent upon an authoritarian system? Well, I don't know, I don't know if I'd go that way because... Uh, mm -hmm. When I look at history, I find that no matter what language people speak, <laughs> we find a way to have authoritarianism arise within the culture. Yeah. And that, no matter how long they've uh, had a democracy, it looks like they, they seem to look for authoritarians too. So let's let's uh, cover the Indus uh, culture. Uh, we have the Indus River culture and yeah. how that was a little different. Some of the features that I think are particular to that culture, the Indus River is is uh, is actually not one river you know uh, it's actually five rivers now uh, that flow through an area that's called Punjab and Punjab means the five waters actually that's what the uh -huh. word means uh, and it was a world it was like water world there was there was one thing about the Indus River which is that water was not precious there was plenty of that then another thing that was distinctive about the civilization that arose uh, along the Indus River was that it was surrounded or flanked at least by these gigantic mountains on the other side of which were the, were the Asian steppes, the grasslands, uh, which were favorable to the life of nomadic herders. And so these nomadic herders were on the other side of the mountains and from time to time constantly over the ages they'd come down and they'd raid or they'd you know, try to set up in here. So in the Indus River early on, you got this um, incredible uh, uh, urban culture along the river with these other kind of like, <laughs> you know, what they probably at that time would have called barbarians coming down. Mm -hmm. And um, the cities of the Indus, uh, of the early Indus culture were bigger than, uh, than anything in any of these other cultures. It, it was vast. And the, uh, the Harappan civilization, the Mohenjo-Daro was two of the main cities there. You know, I, I looked at this again and again because I couldn't believe my eyes. It said a million square miles, uh, square kilometers. It's like, how could that be? Mm -hmm. 
I still am shaking my head at that, but whatever mm. it was, it was vast. And these cities were, you know, they showed the evidence of careful uh, city planning. And mm. although we have not decoded uh, any language that they used, they had something because they made these little, uh, you know, artifacts that had some kind of a script-like thing on it. So they were, they did have language. And, and then at a certain point when these big cities kind of fragmented, deteriorated for whatever reason, uh, there's so many different reasons why a, a civilization loses energy and begins to founder. Mm-hmm. When this civilization began to founder, these other guys from the other side of the, the mountains, they flowed in more and more and they began to, and they began to set up between the, the decaying cities and a whole different kind of culture uh, mm-hmm. developed there. And some of the defining features of, of Indian culture that we still, you know, think about, which is like the, uh, uh, the system of the layered system of Caste. castes and, and occupational uh, um, you know, markers for people being uh, separated into groups. And it's not groups that it's layered in some sense. Um, so some of this comes from uh, these newcomers that came in about 1500 BC or sometime in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, how the old culture and the new culture is related, that's disputed. And I, I don't want to weigh in on that because there's a lot of different ideas. Mm-hmm. But then the, 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 um, the Indo-European culture, and I'm going to use that term even though it's contentious, it doesn't mean Indians, it doesn't mean Europeans, it doesn't mean any of that. It's just a, um, it's just a a linguistic marker for a people that, that began to expand out of some area in the grasslands, their language expanded with them, and it was very different. They all had, they tended to have nature gods, masculine sort of orientation, whereas the people of the, the original people of the Indus had agricultural gods and female <laughs> deities. Mm-hmm. So whatever it is, this mixture, now it flows down into India and it encounters something else coming up from the south. And where mm-hmm. those cultures meet, uh, you begin to see the beginning of what now we call Hinduism. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Hinduism is is uh, ha- its roots go back to Vedic culture, and mm. Vedic is the are the people who came down from the from the uh, from the north. But the original Vedic culture wasn't exactly what you know. Even though the Vedas are now still the foundational important religious documents of mm. um, of Hinduism, Hinduism is not that. It's something new and something mm. that that emerged out of the mixture of these various cultures. A little bit like Christianity emerged out of Judaism. Well, <laughs> or, or is it different? <laughs> Maybe you know. It's like when those two sets of influences met, we don't know which was what. One thing we know, for example, is that the Vedic culture—they were cattle herders, mm-hmm. and they ate cattle, and they 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 killed horses and had big horse sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Once this mixture occurs vegetarianism and ahimsa you know the idea that there's something mm-hmm. wrong with with killing another life form that emerged in there that must have come from the further south i don't know, yeah. you know what the roots were but and and uh, just just to put it in context for our audience uh, mahenjo daro and uh, the other cities from that time that you were first talking about 
At what time were they really big? Is this, it's much earlier than 1500 BC, right? Yeah, let's go back to at least 2000 uh, BC mm -hmm. uh, for those. And you know, um, the cities they built, those cities, they crumbled, you know, and the bricks that their houses were made of were still around when the British came in like the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And the British found these bricks that were still very serviceable and they used them to build, you know, uh, 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 buildings along the, 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 the railroads that they were producing. They didn't know, they had no idea at that point that these were bricks made like 4,000 years ago by a culture <laughs> nobody even knew about. They didn't even realize this culture existed until uh -huh. I think the 1940s, 50s, something like that. How, do you know how they figured it out? That it was that old? I mean, was it radiocarbon uh, dating or something like that? that I don't know the, the, the details. You don't know that story. Okay, great. Um, so another thing, I mean, I, I know uh, your, your background is from Afghanistan. You, you talk about the Kosh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the nomads in just a second. But you talk about the Kosan, Kosan culture, which is a mixture of, of Indian and Greek, because of leftover from Alexander. And you mentioned how it influenced the art so that there's, you know, Buddhist art that looks Greek and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, that, that kind, that style of art is known as Gandharan art. Yeah. Uh, um, probably it has a different pronunciation in, <laughs> in different <laughs> places, but uh, the, the, this, those Buddhas that were, um, that were destroyed by the Taliban were examples of this Gandharan art. Right. And in, in, um, in India, where Buddhism arose, they weren't into making sculptures of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. uh, they, uh, they didn't think that enhanced spirituality. And the Greeks were all about making sculptures. Somehow for them, making mm -hmm. a sculpture of your deities was a way of making them real. And then when these two influences uh, mixed, you have beautiful, <laughs> you know, uh, sculptures, but they're all this Gandharan art is influenced by by the Greeks in, in the sense that they make, uh, you know, sophisticated physical forms, but always of just of the Buddha. And yeah. if you look at that art, you can see that the purpose of the sculpture uh, was trying to capture some sense of what Buddhism was all about. You know, there. Mm -hmm. There's the peaceful lookingness of the, <laughs> the serenity. Yeah, yeah. You know, other otherworldliness. Yeah, um, it is. It is gorgeous art. The um, so now you you tell the story of these big urban civilizations and the the percentage of human beings on the planet that were in those civilizations is relatively small. That most people were nomads. I don't think we know. At a certain point, everybody was hunting gathering tribes. Right. <laughs> you know? uh, and then. Uh, the the um, the pattern of civilization has been that well let's put it this way nomadism was the lifestyle from for a much greater uh, uh, swath of the earth than these cities occupied that's true but mm. the but the uh, the areas that the nomads inhabited were grasslands and they were nomadic you know they, their area was 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 vast so I don't know how many people there were there. Mm -hmm. uh, what I do, um, uh, what I do see is that the nomads, uh, when a group was very successful and uh, and the and the group uh, got big, uh, what it did was split because you can't move a thousand people very mm -hmm. easily and, and conveniently. So when it got too big, it tended to split and some of them went off. So that's why 
out of the out of the grasslands, there was this dispersal that took whatever language had emerged in that area, mm-hmm. and it came drifting down, you know, drifting east and west and then south into all these different areas, which is why you know Greek, Italian, English, Farsi, uh, uh, Sanskrit, all these languages are uh, come from a, the same ancestral root, and that's why mm-hmm. they're called. Indo-European languages, because whatever it is, it's something that spread from some area and got as far as as Europe in one direction and as far as India in the other direction. We won't go into it here, but uh, for those who are interested in a nice detective story, uh, the uh, 18th and 19th century linguists who who put that together. Yeah, I've lost you there, George. <laughs> we saw a connection between Sanskrit and Greek and Latin until uh-huh. they started doing that. And it's, it's fairly recent that that puzzle's put together. And it's, what also is interesting is that the, those language dispersal maps uh, match the genetic dispersal maps that are now being made, right, of, of, of where the genes go. And so we have two different, uh, in fact, we have other versions too, but the, the maps overlay each other in ways that, that make it fairly convincing, the story that we tell about what happened. Absolutely. And, you know, there, there, was, there was arguments about, no, these languages, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they all emerged and they... But no, the genetic, uh, when the genetic uh, uh, data so perfectly matched mm-hmm. the linguistic data, that I, I, I would say that's, <laughs> that one has been uh, settled. That one's been settled. So uh, let's go to Africa for a little while. You touch yeah. on it from a little bit later period of time uh, after Islam. Um, but Africa, uh, of course, uh, has as many languages uh, as, as all these other areas and uh, developed different empires and different things. Uh, But I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with that, the sweep of that part of the history. Do you have a a sort of short, you know, look at that and and, and can give people an idea about how that continent was found? We do know that that's where where everybody came from, uh, basically, that we started there. But that was long, long, long ago. So so, uh, in the last 5,000 years, what do we know about how the population distributed and developed and, and, and what cultures, besides Egypt, we're familiar with that one. Well, one thing we know is that there was a sophisticated culture that emerged more or less where Nigeria is now. You know, Africa has that place where it, you know, there's a fist and it kind of bends down. Right, right. around in that bendy area, there was a culture that um, uh, they call it the Nok culture, N-O-K. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't as old as these uh, as these other ones we've been talking about. And it also wasn't a river culture, even though there were the two big rivers of Africa were right there. Uh, it wasn't a river culture because those rivers do not carry sediment down from mountains. So they were not mm-hmm. uh, uh, favorable. They didn't particularly do anything for farming. Uh, but the Nok culture, uh, you know, very little remains of it. But the, the reason is because they lived in a heavily vegetated area where the things they could build, the houses they built, were perfectly uh, buildable from wood and from plant products. And elsewhere where people built from stone and, and clay because that's what they had, well, mm-hmm. those things lasted in the Nok culture. They built, uh, uh, you know, they made terracotta sculptures that they found those, although broken up in various places, they put some of it together. But very, it was just, they can tell from the sculptures that it was a, uh, a complicated uh, uh, society with layered culture and a lot of kind of status differentiation. So in that sense, it was, it was sophisticated like Greece or these other places. At some point, for some reason that I think they don't really know, 
uh, people began to migrate out of that area. And they migrated slowly. It wasn't really a migration. It was uh, kind of a trickling across the landscape, probably mm -hmm. because they, um, they had the slash and burn uh, uh, technique of farming, which mm -hmm. meant you, you cut down the vegetation, you burn it, and then the ash fertilizes the soil. Mm -hmm. And it's fertile for a while, but when it's, when it's no longer fertile, you got to move to the next place where there's uh, brush Something to burn. Down, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, they might be there for a generation or two and then go to the next. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's not really a migration. It's, it's kind of like a, a seeping across the, the, uh, the land. But um, uh, it took a thousand years probably for the, the people who spoke the ancestral language of many uh, modern Af African languages to get over to the Atlantic side. And then once they got there, they, they moved south and they probably met up someplace down in the, uh, where, where South Africa is now. Mm -hmm. There is a couple of geographic factors that influenced, um, you know, the uh, evolution of, of society in Africa, which is that uh, the tropical rainforest that's in the middle of, that's in the core of Africa. Mm -hmm. And then below that, uh, there's, a, there's one of those really, you know, ferocious deserts that it's really hard for, you know, people to live in. Civilization was not going to uh, emerge yeah. there. And then north of that, uh, you have the Sahara Desert, which completely divided Africa into a northern part and a southern part. Mm -hmm. uh, and today, mo um, you know, a great many la African languages are as like these Indo-European languages, they're Bantu languages. And, and mm -hmm. all of that seems to have come from this uh, Benin, uh, Nigeria area. Hmm. So they have a similar story to the Indo-European uh, distribution of languages. Yeah, and you know, and you know that some things like copper smelting and making copper and the iron, you know, the the the, the stumbling upon the ability to make iron, that the, that uh, apparently emerged separately in the sub-Saharan Africa. It didn't come from the north. They they mm -hmm. discovered that on their own in some other way. So basically the Sahara Desert was what kept like Rome and any of the other civilizations from, from incorporating Africa, not, not the ocean so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it was the, the Sahara. Mm. And, and the Sahara wasn't there maybe 7,000 years ago or, or, or- Oh, really? Yeah, at one time that was a green, <laughs> that was a lush area. And then for, for whatever reason, the desertification I hope, it wasn't, I hope it wasn't climate change caused by uh, too much copper smelting. <laughs> I don't think it was that, but you know, the, 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 the Sahara Desert has been advancing, and part of the reason is that, um, that um, uh, goat uh, herding along the edges crops the soil so much, you know, goats yeah. way down, that it, it, um, you know, it allows the desert to, to keep invading the, the farmable land. Yeah. All right, well, let's, um, let's go back to the nomads for a second. So we have the, these four big civilizations. We have an idea about Africa. But uh, you basically uh, say that uh, the Asian steppes and, and Europe uh, were, were filled with nomads and uh, that they, they were the cultures that, that you know, kept around the fringes of these urban civilizations and would come and attack them every once in a while, steal a bunch of stuff and leave, and, of course, learn, learn things in the process. Well, uh, yeah, they were between the civilizations, but also the, the homeland of nomadism, uh, at least in the Eurasian part, 
uh, was north. It wasn't, you know, it's like uh, there was a huge area from, let's say, uh, around the Caspian Sea, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the, um, the gates of Europe there, all the way across to the, however it's pronounced, the Tian Shan Mountains or whatever. And mm-hmm. so that area was, was the nomads area. And, you know, one of the points that I, uh, I want to stress in the book and that I, uh, you know, I'll raise now is that nomads were not the, the left behind primitives. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that, uh, um, nomads were, were people who developed a, uh, a functional and sophisticated culture geared to their environment. Their environment was not, there was no rivers. It was, you know, herding was exactly what, what worked mm-hmm. up there. And they developed that to the nth degree. Um, and um, there were important and, and seminal inventions that came out of that nomadic area. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know if you call the domestication of the horse an invention. I kind of do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That happened up there. And then uh, the chariot was invented up there. And then, uh, you know, the, the, the composite bow, which, uh, you know, is um, a, a bow that you don't have to, uh, you know, you, you glue together a lot of strips of wood and mm-hmm. it makes a small bow that, that has a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the composite bow, if you want more oomph to, your, to the arrow that you're going to shoot, you got to get a bigger and thicker piece of wood. And there's, you know, there's a limit to how far you can go with that. Another thing that I believe was probably invented in the, uh, in the north up there were pants. Pants. Because <laughs> you can't ride with horses, right? Yeah, you need pants really help you ride a horse. Um, so I think that was invented up there. Um, so I, I think we can assume that they had something like the Kentucky Derby, um, you know, because they they had a lot of contests. So so we really can't take uh, credit for for doing that either, right? Uh, absolutely. You know what else they probably had that uh, that we still see in the Kentucky Derby? They probably had gambling, because the, oh, I, 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 <laughs> the people that came down into India were very much into things like gambling and drinking. <laughs> yeah, I think gambling and drinking probably go back about you know a couple hundred thousand years. We <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure it was everywhere. <laughs> but too too fundamental to human life. Um, but and it's. This group of nomads in the, as you said, from the Caspian Sea uh, all the way out to the edges of Mongolia and everything, it's from that group who, who 15,000 years ago went over the bridge uh, to go to, to uh, what's now North, I mean, then North America and South America, right? Well, you know, who did that is, is difficult to say because mm-hmm. whatever that was, it happened maybe 30,000 years ago, mm-hmm. it might have started. And it was whatever migration was happening, it was probably not, uh, you know, it, it almost surely were not nomadic herders. It was yeah. almost surely hunters and gatherers who did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's some reason to think that the Siberian people who are not, you know, they're not the Turks, they're not the Mongols, they're, they're a different people. Yeah. They might be related uh, to the original uh, migrants into the Americas, but nobody really knows. Mm-hmm. And and uh, for the civilizations in the uh, in the Americas, uh, they developed obviously completely independently, or at least seemingly completely independently. There are people who argue that China, you know, sailed there in 500 and all all those kind of things. But in general, it's assumed that that was totally independently, and yet they they developed similar, um, you know, had similar developments at a 
not not that big a difference in the time frame that they developed in terms of rural uh, urban civilizations and uh, agricultural developments and agricultural trade for their empires. So, well, it's interesting that it, I mean, where uh, from all your research, where did where did you come down in this idea that it was totally independently uh, created or that there must have been some influence from another society for them to also make pyramids also. Well, you know, uh, that um, uh, takes me back to another point, Mm -hmm. which goes back to the origins of language and, you know, how language is related to culture. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, uh, you know, this is maybe one of my, uh, the the points that I'm most uh, interested in, in, Mm -hmm. in, history that I'm telling, um, which is that when people have a network of intercommunication, the stories they tell circulate amongst themselves, and those stories hook up to become a meta-narrative, a big narrative, uh, a, um, a kind of a framework for life, and it enables people to build a symbolic world together that exists in their mutual collective imagination. So mm-hmm. by the time you get to people going into the Americas, that sort of a cultural universe uh, with its own, with myths and, and, uh, and stories and narratives, that I bet already exists. And, and some kind of ancestral mythological history already exists. So in that sense, they're not separate. Now, when they went over to the Americas, they were chasing game and for a long time, they couldn't go much further than Alaska and just a little bit down into Canada because mm-hmm. there was a big ice sheet. It was still the ice age. It wasn't until the, 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 uh, the ice melted and cut them off from, from uh, uh, you know, the rest of the world over there that they were able to migrate down into uh, uh, the Americas proper. Mm-hmm. What's, what's interesting to me is that the kinds of cultures you see in the um, uh, those river civilizations that you see in the in the in the east in the eastern hemisphere, uh, it feels like you don't see those in the western hemisphere. You know, mm-hmm. places where big, uh, complicated uh, civilizations emerged in the Americas were somehow high on the mountains or in the tropical areas. You know, in in Peru there was um, uh, early cultures, and yes, they had. Um, they had um, settlements down by the sea, but they had settlements up into the Andes and they were rain-based. Uh, and then in, uh, in the tropical, like Central America or you know, Mesoamerica, mm-hmm. uh, those cultures, instead of focusing on how to um, uh, guard the floodwaters that they were getting, instead, if their big projects were building platforms out of the water, out of the swampy waters to create the dry land on which they were going to farm and build their big civilizations. Mm-hmm. So that part is, is fairly, uh, you know, there's something different going on. Very and, different, yeah. Uh, as well, you know, a crucial difference was that uh, the Americas did not really have animals that could be domesticated and herded. Uh, oh. Once they had wiped out the big game, they, they pretty much think it was people that did that, you know, the master. Yep. Uh, once they, they uh, um, wiped those out, there were no cows, there were no sheep, there were no um, um, horses. Those mm-hmm. things didn't exist. Uh, there were buffalo, 
but for some reason, buffalo refused to be domesticated. So you could hunt them, but you couldn't herd them. They're llamas, but for, they live up in the mountains and their their legs are too skinny to pull carts and so on. So they mm -hmm. they had a different function in, in those societies. So I think there were uh, distinctive differences between the civilizations that arose in the Americas and those that in the in the Eastern Hemisphere. However, in the Americas, the sophistication certainly developed. You know, uh, the 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 numerical uh, system that was transformed by the idea of turning zero into a number, which happened in India, mm -hmm. and was also separately discovered by the Mayans in mm -hmm. the West. So, uh, you know, the calendars and all the different kinds of sophisticated things that happened in one place happened in the other. On the other hand, everything that had to do with the wheel uh, didn't develop in the Americas. And it wasn't because they couldn't think of a wheel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they, they, some of their calendars are, are wheel-like. Right. But, but the thing is, the wheel, uh, well, the potter's wheel uh, was, a, was a function in the East, but more importantly was the cart. You know, a wheel was so useful with a cart uh, that's pulled by a horse. But if you don't have something to pull a cart, what's the point of a wheel? What's the point of the wheel, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, well, let's, let's move forward because uh, you, you, you talk about a lot of different uh, ideas when we get to his, history period of time. And we'll, we'll get to questions in just a, a couple of minutes uh, from the audience. So uh, you can keep uh, sending them, we have a couple. And, uh, you, you have this argument uh, that I found fascinating, that there were three, uh, this is sort of the Middle Ages, that there were three main uh, Islamic civilizations, um, all of which had been doing very well, um, and then the plague came, and in Europe, uh, which wasn't doing that well, the plague came, but uh, each of those civilizations reacted differently to it, and that has created our modern world. So Well, the, the plague... You know, I could go on for a long time about plagues. I've been thinking about it because we're in the middle yeah, yeah. of the pandemic. Yeah, that's why I bring it up. <laughs> has a, pandemics have had a, an abrupt and drastic effect on altering the world historical flow. So one of those times was the Black Death. And, you know, the Black Death emerged in the Central Asian area someplace, you know, maybe where Afghanistan, Iran is, or someplace around there. But for, for whatever reason, it really did its damage in Europe. And, but in, in the other part of the world, there was a, a different kind of catastrophe that happened, which was the eruption of the Mongol armies, which sacked and destroyed whole cities. Mm. Now, the, there's a difference between uh, war destroying things and, and disease destroying things. War destroys the infrastructure that was the, the, the proud fruits of a civilization. Mm. Um, you know, plague, uh, killed all the people and left the, the roads and the castles intact. Mm -hmm. And um, who it killed most particularly were the peasants who were at the bottom of society, but they were the key to European society because it was entirely mm -hmm. agricultural and it was the peasants who did all that work. Mm -hmm. And once there were so few peasants that, um, you know, the lords, the lords with swords, I like to call them. <laughs> <laughs> Once the lords with swords were, were, were hurting for peasants, those peasants became a precious resource and they had bargaining power they'd never had before. All of a sudden, they could walk off the land and what are you gonna do about it, Lord? 
uh, yeah. you know, somebody else is going to pay you. Uh, they could set their own terms. That was one of the things that transformed and eliminated the feudal system in Europe. And that cleared the way for, um, um, for this commercial revolution that was about to start, which was uh, intricately involved with the rise of Europe over the next five centuries, the commercial power. Well, let's, let's go to the uh, first question that has come in. Um, does your book address human cause change to ecosystems and climates? I noticed you just mentioned the thesis that goat herding accelerates the, the Sahara spread southward. So what, what, what did we, have we learned from history or what have we not learned from history that, that could be applicable um, today to the issue of climate change and how we're supposed to deal with it? Um, we're, we're both in the Bay Area here and we had, had quite a day on uh, last Wednesday uh, from I mean, this it was like a solar eclipse all day long um, yeah. because of the fire and there was an orange haze uh, all day long and it, it, it certainly uh, affected a lot of people's psychology because it was just so weird. So um, why don't, why don't you, if, if there's anything to enlighten us from history, that would be wonderful. Well, you know, the thing is climate, uh, not exactly climate change, but uh, the, the changes that occur in the environment have been definitive for the development of cultures. I just mentioned to you that the Sahara once was green and then it became the biggest desert in the world. Um, so uh, environmental shifts have always happened and uh, it has affected what's happened in history. But until recently, until let's say five, uh, five centuries ago at the earliest, uh, the attitude we had as humans to the environment, to the climate was that. No, nothing we do could change the, the environment. We're just adapting to it. And one of our assumptions was what we have to do then is to make sure we leave behind as many kids as possible so that the environment doesn't wipe us out. Once we get to the machine age, we begin to develop this, this, this sense bolstered by the fact that our machines become more and more powerful so that we can in fact change the climate. Our numbers increased to such an extent that, uh, that you know, we weren't able to keep up with the proliferation of our machinery, which, uh, you know, we were burning fossil fuels and we, we couldn't stop because there were so many of us and we had to feed all of us. And now we're on the verge of, of choking on our own pollution and changing climate. I don't think, when I was born, I don't think any anybody on earth really thought that humans, uh, could do anything to affect the planet. The planet would affect people. And I would say that when I was a, you know, a counterculture hippie guy in the, in the 70s, <laughs> that was a revelation that me and all my buddies were happening on that, hey, you know something? Uh, we could be uh, ruining the earth here. We better look out. And the environment became an issue for us then that I think it hadn't been until around then, you know, until Silent Spring and some of these, uh, you know, the population bomb, that, that's when the, the, um, uh, the, the, the consciousness uh, emerged that we could have such a drastic effect. I won't go into how, what can we do about it because that's too big an issue, uh, but we do have to do, <laughs> we, we got to do something. I think one of the reasons that I'm, I'm writing this book or have written this book and what I'm concerned about is that 
now so distinctly for the first time, we are facing planetary problems that we have to confront as a some single social organism that is all of humanity. And why I am so interested and focused on culture and language is that the nature of culture is, and the nature of language is, uh, it creates uh, self-enclosed complete networks. And so right now we're in a situation where we're facing planetary problems, uh, but we are not any planetary creature. There's no planetary uh, culture that we have. And we have to have some social narrative that, that, that enables us to feel like we are all part of something or we'll never be able to confront this catastrophic something that is facing all of us. And I think history is a part of that. Let's tell the story of who we all are, not just who some of us are. It, it seems to me that before, before the late 60s and early 70s, when a lot of people started writing about it, uh, there was an attempt to like, clean the water and clean uh, the air. Not, not, it wasn't planetary-wide, but everyone noticed that the Great Lakes, for example, were getting polluted. And at other times, yeah. we've noticed that things have gotten polluted. And they did something about it, and it, and it changed. And so there's always been that adapt, as you said, we adapt to the Earth. The Earth is getting ruined, or we're ruining it uh, in this one area. Now let's fix it. So um, that's, I think, was the prelude. But I think you're right. Uh, at the end of the 60s and the early 70s, a lot of books were written that made it very clear um, that we have to do something about this. You, you have a great idea about, well, you, you have this idea about peripheral cultures uh, because you, you say that every culture looks at every other culture as peripheral. <laughs> and, and, and your point is that we have to stop doing that um, if we're going to get someplace as a, as a human race on this planet and do something about the big issues. Uh, do you have any particular prescriptions? I mean, it seems to me it's you know, pretty simple just to say, hey, uh, no one culture can dictate to any other culture. And if you look at history, even those that came in and, and conquered another culture, they often were culture, conquered by the culture of the, of the place that they conquered more often than, than imposed a culture on them. So, well, it happens all different ways. You know, cultures, yeah. cultures weave together and new cultures emerge, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think we have to be careful not to, um, uh, not to conflate the, the cultural imperialism that is the product of actual political imperialism and economic imperialism uh, with uh, cultural uh, mingling, um, with cultural, uh, you know, um, with cultures interacting to produce new cultural products or new cultures. Um, the danger of, of uh, of looking at, say, something like cultural appropriation too primitively is that you're blocking the ability for cultures to begin to unite and combine to form new and bigger cultures. And we have to do that. Now, the, the thing that I'm saying specifically about history and peripheral cultures is that, um, you know, <clears throat> all cultures, all world histories are a somebody-centric story of how we got to where we are today. Mm. And uh, what I'm saying is that the, the world story we need to tell now is still going to be how did we get to where we are today, except the we is going to have to be all of us. And so yeah. the story we're going to tell has to take account of the fact that we came from very many places. And the story we tell 
is going to be about the interweaving of those cultures, how they interacted, how they affected each other, what they discovered because they were in conversation with each other, so that we can have a story that is the story of all of us and, and, and you know, that makes us feel like a, a sense of peoplehood about us all being here together now on this little planet. <laughs> yeah, you have a great um, concept of the cultural narrative. And, and you, you mentioned some cultural narratives seem to be more tenacious than other ones. That some cultures just keep holding on. They're doing something for what humanity wants. You mentioned the Jewish culture. It's a small, relatively small group, but it's tenacious. It, their narrative just keeps holding on for that group. Um, and and it, it, what's interesting is, as you said, uh, we, we're coming at it with all these different narratives. And of course, we've all beaten each other up quite a bit. I, I always think, you know, if we if we move forward, if we just said every piece of land on the planet has probably been stolen at least a thousand times, you know, in the last, you know, a hundred thousand years and, and, and quite often in the last uh, 5,000 years. Yeah. And, and we just have to think more about moving forward rather than, than uh, writing all the wrongs because there's, there's no way to write all the wrongs. Um, and, and it's our ancestors that suffered uh, uh, more than we do. There's always, aftermaths of all these cultural problems, of course, that continue on and on. Um, but it seems that we can get rid of them faster if we, if we move forward rather than try to recreate the past or... or, or. Well, you know, we can't, um, uh, we can't fix the wrongs of the past and we can't do it by forgetting what happened in the past. Right. We can and must fix the wrongs as they exist now and going forward. Uh, yeah. But you know, for me, uh, I was born and raised in Afghanistan. I'm here now. My mother was American. My father was Afghan. And all my life, I've confronted uh, a pressure from various sides to say, which are you? You have to be one or the other. Are you an American or are you an Afghan? And I resist that. And I kind of, frankly, it ruffles me. It's yeah. like, no, I'm something, I'm both. And I'm not rejecting my mother or my father. Sorry, I'm something, if that's something new, then that's something new. And, and I want a world in which there's more people like me, a mixture of everything. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can look forward to all being Polynesian, right? <laughs> um, and that would certainly be a great outcome if, if uh, that's what happened from, from a looks point of view. So um, yeah, there's, there's, you, you touched on it, cultural appropriation, which is of course a big issue. Um, but I always look at it as cultural appropriation or cultural appreciation and what we really want I think it would be a great conference, a world conference, if every culture came and said, these are our culture's contributions that we think the whole world culture should appreciate, you know, for the next thousand years. Um, and these are our top 10 nominees for that. Sort of like the way uh, UNESCO does all the world heritage sites or something like that. So that people uh, have a list of, of, of pride that their culture created. And I, I, every culture has a list like that. Um, and then, then we could we could incorporate that into uh, uh, you know world history lessons everywhere that kind of thing instead of always having a uh, a point of view from the culture you're talking about about world history which is always like the maps I the the, the maps of the world uh, you know if it's a United States map the United States is in the center and of course it makes the United States uh, look bigger. And, and if you take Russia uh, and the Russian maps there in the center, it makes Siberia look enormous. Um, <laughs> it, it is big enough all by itself, but that kind of cultural chauvinism doesn't stop anywhere. You know? so, no, but, but I will say this, I don't know if we're running out of time, but I will say that 
No. Okay, I will say this. You know, um, um, since being locked up in this pandemic, <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> a lot more. I've been like rummaging around in in my past, and among the things I've been doing is uh, I've been discovering that <clears throat> uh, on YouTube. I can hear music that I heard when I was a kid that's Afghan music. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I find is that, uh, you know, my American friends, they like some of it and it's, and it's exotic and so on. Uh, for me, it's not that, you know, for me, it's like Elvis Presley. Right, <laughs> you know, right, right. The Beatles affect me. The same is true of how, when I listen to Noshinos, you know, the, an Afghan. He's still alive, I think. He's like 80, 90 years old now. But uh -huh. when I listen to him, and and he has a way of of trilling his voice that's like, ah, oh, that, that. I want other people to be able to appreciate that. Right. You know? And when I read um, the poet Hafiz, there's no translating it. I, I like to try to translate it, but I'd also like to try to bring some way of being able to convey to others so that they can experience it, what it's like to hear some of those lines. Uh, the Russians all, all feel that, the Russians all feel that way about Pushkin. You know, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. There's just, no, there's just no translating to another language without losing so much of the fluidity and the beauty. Uh, and of course, languages rhyme in different ways. Italian is easy to rhyme, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. It makes a big yeah, difference yeah. in poetry as your language and everything. No one imagined that, but it, it's, it, it is a great thing about the, the YouTubes and everything else. And I, I think if we, if we can make a distinction between this appropriation and appreciation, um, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, that we need to be able to appreciate all the other cultures and what they've accomplished in order to move forward. Because even if you don't accept each of the things that they think are wonderful, um, you at least say that culture has also accomplished something and therefore they can join us in accomplishing something more. It's like, like uh, everybody has competence uh, instead, of, instead of thinking that elsewhere everybody's incompetent. You know, the, those kind of statements that just prejudice an entire place and say, you know, nobody there has ever done anything of any use whatsoever. But if you take something like a, the, the invention of movies, for example, okay, so that's a technological invention, but everybody has used it differently. And, and, and it's true, Americans don't see a lot of the good movies from other countries. But, you know, this, this uh, shutdown has made people bored enough that they maybe have even uh, tested that and, and, and gone out and see, I have seen everything already here. Uh, three mm -hmm. times, so now I'm going to go and, and try something else. And, and you find that there's all kinds of things from other countries, and, and yet it's the same technology, but it's a very different culture as to how it's a, a, a put on. So let's see, one last question. Um, you're working on another book right now. So, so what are you working on right now? Because it's somewhat related. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, uh, a huge theme in, in, in the book we're talking about now is narrative. And I don't think I've been able to really communicate what I mean by narrative. So my next book is really going to be uh, tracing and studying the history of a narrative. Mm -hmm. And that narrative is conspiracy theory. Oh my. <laughs> I know. You're it's, going to get a lot of attention for that one. <laughs> a scary book to write. But uh, 
So, so what I'm doing is not just tracing the history, but like examining what is a narrative? How does this thing work? I'm going to compare conspiracy theory to a virus in culture. You know, it gets uh -huh. into culture. It can, it can infect other cultural uh, forms that are not conspiracy theory, that have total validity, but are, but are then diseased because they've got conspiracy theory inside them. Yeah. And I'm going to show that that's, we're in a crisis state with that too right now. <laughs> we, we are. It, it, it reminds me of one of my favorite anonymous quotes, which was, an idea is not responsible for the people who believe in it. And, and, and here, you, you, as you said, you know, there's, there's people who believe certain things and they attach themselves to, to other groups altogether um, that are trying to accomplish a lot of, a lot of um, reform groups uh, that try to accomplish something, reform in, in society, get those kind of groups attached to them and, and it ruins their reform. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my point about conspiracy theory, part of what I want to try to get across is that it exists in culture as many other things do, but conspiracy theory really will bring it out. Conspiracy theory exists in culture like an organism. It has a life and a will of its own and it goes out and searches for cultural events and phenomena mm -hmm. that it can get inside of. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not any person that's doing that. It's, it's the narrative itself mm -hmm. is, is, is like an, a live organism within the landscape of culture. It's a very good analogy. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and there's no way to kill that virus either. <laughs> well, no, I think there's ways to weaken it though. That, that's also what my book is about. <laughs> the vaccine against conspiracy theory is going to come in your book. How's that? <laughs> That'll be the vaccine again. We, we, yeah, we need that too. We can bring it down enough that way. That'd be just wonderful. Well, we that was a wonderful conversation too. again. Uh, Tamim, uh, thank you very much. Uh, the uh, author of The Invention of History, Destiny Disrupted in, in, in other books and, and working on a, a conspiracy theory. We won't ask anybody to attach themselves to you. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me here. This has been a lot of fun, George. Yeah, my pleasure again. So ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. This 118th year has been very good. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.